Welcome back to the Public Lands Podcast. I am your guest host this week, Jeremiah McCulloch. I'm sure many of us with social media are witness to what would seem like a constant stream of protest videos. From the dump Trump protests just last week, to the climate strike walkouts a few months ago, it seems like there are always people on the streets of our cities making their voices heard. I like to think I'm pretty in the loop with these demonstrations, but the other week I saw protest videos where I didn't know what people were marching for. I saw videos of thousands of people pouring into the streets of Duluth in protest of something by the name of Pipeline 3. I decided to contact an organization by the name of MN350. One rainy day I met with one of their representatives in a coffee shop in St. Paul. My name is Margaret Breen. Um, I am a St. Paul resident and student at McAllister College uh, at MN350. I'm on the pipeline resistance team and have been for about two and a half years. I'm also on the coordinating council and the campaign strategy group. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your organization, MN350, what they are doing to fight against these pipelines and what their like main mission goal is. 350 National is an, is an international organization um, that addresses climate change. And MN350 is affiliated with that, but is not like doesn't report to 350 National. It's a statewide organization that's based in the Twin Cities. Um, the way that MN350 is structured is that we have different working teams, and the pipeline resistance team is the one that's um, leading the efforts to resist Line 3. For our listeners who might not be aware, what is Pipeline 3 and why are environmental and indigenous organizations fighting to stop it? Line 3 to start is a proposed tar sands oil pipeline that would travel from Alberta, Canada uh, through a little bit of North Dakota, um, mostly through northern Minnesota, and then end in Superior, Wisconsin, right across the state border. Um, It is a little confusing because Line 3 is an existing pipeline that was built by Enbridge in 1961, and that pipeline is uh, old and decrepit and decaying and and I think we're all in agreement should not be running oil through it um, but the new line three um, is being touted as like a replacement from Enbridge but really the similarities don't extend beyond the name um, it is on for half of its route is a completely new route um, the old line three runs through the Enbridge existing mainline corridor and the new one cuts through uh, new land that does not cross reservation land but treaty land exposing new parts of Minnesota to like the risks of tar sand oil construction and and running the pipeline. Um, It has twice the carrying capacity of the old Line 3 um, and carries more what is called heavy diluted bitumen oil, which is otherwise known as tar sands oil, um, and that has a lot greater uh, climate impacts uh, and risks than regular sweet crude oil. Um, Why I oppose it, uh, I guess, kind of like to describe it in three different parts. Uh, The first being the risks that it poses to the environment. As I mentioned, um, it's exposed a lot new Minnesota land to um, the risks of an oil pipeline. It also crosses over 192 bodies of water in Minnesota, including the Mississippi River twice. Um, And if you don't know, we in the Twin Cities get a lot of our drinking water from the Mississippi River. It's really important. Um, it also, uh, because it's carrying tar sands oil, that, that oil is a lot harder to clean up than other oil. It is thick, it's about the consistency of peanut butter. Um, and so when it spills near water bodies, it sinks to the bottom and mixes up with the sediment at the bottom of the lake, um, which makes it almost impossible to clean up. Um, Enbridge is responsible for the largest uh, inland oil spill in the, in the US, um, which happened in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And 
over the last 15 years, Enbridge pipelines have spilled 800 times, and that's the equivalent of one spill every week. One spill a week, every week, for the last 15 years. Um, so, yeah. So you're not very confident that this pipeline company will not have the same issues happen again with this newest pipeline? No, I mean, they haven't given us any reason to think that. I mean, pipelines, it's not Enbridge in particular. Pipelines spill. That's that's just the nature of the beast with them. Um, it's inevitable. The degree of the spill can vary, but um, they, they spill. <laughs> um, yeah, and so that's definitely um, a primary concern. Um, but it also has really profound impacts um, on the communities that live along the route of the pipeline as, as well as around Minnesota. Um, so the... Pipeline carries, because it, as I mentioned, it is about the consistency of peanut butter, um, it has to be mixed with a lot of chemicals in order to reach a point where it can be pumped through the pipe. Um, we don't know exactly what all those chemicals are because they're considered trade secret by Enbridge, um, but they are, they, we know that they consider carcinogens such as benzene. Um, and so that exposes communities along the route to really toxic materials. Um, it also, when thinking about the impacts on communities, it has a profound and disproportionate impact on uh, indigenous communities up north. Uh, the route crosses uh, treaty land, so with the exception of Fond du Lac, doesn't cross any reservation land, but treaty land is land that um, tribes do not own in the sense of like they don't have prop like private property ownership over them but they have what's called usufructory rights over them so they have the right to uh, like hunt and gather wild rice and harvest uh, or harvest wild rice and gather medicinal plants and things like that along that land um, and line three the a spill or even disruptive construction um, threatens that right especially because it you know crosses or becomes comes within one mile of 20 wild rice lakes in Minnesota Minnesota the primary producer of wild rice is a stake of, and yeah it's really valuable and, and is really sensitive to these kinds of like ecological impacts to it um, the construction isn't even potential like Enbridge has already begun clear-cutting um, trees on land that they already have eminent domain over and so yeah even that kind of um, construction can have really profound impacts I think it is also really important to mention like the impact on uh, murdered and missing indigenous women in northern communities um, as is uh, Native women, uh, one in three Native women uh, suffer from sexual violence and those numbers only increase when you have large influxes of young male temporary workers coming into the state. Um, and so I think it's really important to also acknowledge um, like the community health impact of that as well. So if Edinburgh is completely allowed to abandon the uh, existing pipeline, what kind of ecological impact do you think that would have in those regions? I think that it's important to note that it's really hard to know if all of the oil is gone from a pipeline until it's too late. Um, and that has happened in the past where, you know, federally there's very limited regulations on um, pipeline abandonment, um, which is a problem and should be addressed. Um, but it's happened before where companies um, have left pipelines in the ground thinking that they're empty and then they can spill a lot of oil later. Um, and so I guess, yeah, I'm not sure about like the impact of actually physically having the pipeline there, but I mean, like knowing that it's there's no guarantee that it's clean as well as just the idea of having decaying metal in the ground isn't great. Um, and then I just want to talk about the pushback that you might have seen from the state or from... Uh, these oil companies that you're essentially battling against. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me about any resistance you've seen from them? 
Yeah, I would say from the state, we have seen both resistance and cooperation. Um, it's not definitely not monolithic across the government. Um, the Department of Commerce has really come out swinging against the pipeline, um, and so they're you know part of the Minnesota state government. Um, but you know, as you know, the Public Utilities Commission has really gone out of their way to make things very easy for Enbridge in constructing this pipeline. Um, Enbridge is a powerful force, to say the least. Um, they have a stupid amount of money um, backing their cause. Um, last year, Min uh, Enbridge set records with how much money they spent lobbying the state of Minnesota, more money than any other um, institution has spent lobbying Minnesotans. Um, and along with that, I think that they are fighting much harder for the Line 3 pipeline than they probably would have in the past. Um, Why do you think that is, that they're fighting so much harder now? Uh, I mean, I obviously can't read Enbridge stakeholders' minds, but I think that they understand that the tides are shifting in Minnesota and across the country and world, um, and that there is an understanding that we need to be moving away from new fossil fuel infrastructure, um, and that will only become more institutionalized in the coming years uh, and I think that they know that and they know that you know this is uh, line three is going to be seen as a precedent for future fossil free infrastructure in Minnesota uh, and if it is stopped that will give us a lot more power than I think then extends beyond just this project. How can people who are interested in uh, pipeline resistance or MN 350 as a whole just get involved with your organization where can they go to learn more about you? Yeah, so uh, the Pipeline Resistance team specifically um, meets every other Thursday from 6.30 to 8.30 um, at the MN350 office, which is um, on Lake Street, 4407 East Lake Street. Um, but uh, beyond that, I think like if even if you don't have the capacity or interest in maybe getting the behind the scenes and planning these events, um, there are a lot of action opportunities to show up um, in a variety of capacities. And... Um, you can probably the best way to find those is on our Facebook page. I would be remiss not to mention them and 350 Gala coming up on October 25th oh, yeah. uh, as well. But yeah, I mean, other than that, I think that the Facebook as well as the MN350 uh, website are probably the best places. Margaret gave me a lot of great answers, but I was still curious. How do communities up north, where the proposed pipelines would be constructed, feel about this? I got in contact with an indigenous environmentalist organization named Honor the Earth, and one of their lawyers gave me a call to talk more. My name is Frank Bebo, and I live here in Ball Club, Minnesota, on Leech Lake Reservation with my wife. And I work for Honor the Earth as an attorney, uh, representing Honor the Earth and right now um, White Earth Reservation at the PUC, the Public Utilities Commission for the state of Minnesota with regard to Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline permitting project. What is Pipeline 3 and why are environmental and indigenous organizations fighting to stop it? Pipeline 3 in particular is one of the oldest pipelines. It's about 60 years old and most of us believe it should be shut down if it's dangerous and that it shouldn't be you know, replaced in any fashion. And so when people say Pipeline 3, they're really talking about a couple of things because you're talking about the old pipeline, but they're talking about doing replacement in a new corridor where no pipeline presently exists across wetlands, aquifers, wild rice, rivers, streams, uh, important cultural places for the Chippewa. And so that's where they want to go with the replacement route, but at the same time, it's 
that's just going to start a pattern. They're going to start replacing pipelines. They're going to want to put it in a new corridor, and they're going to start abandoning more pipelines because that's not the only old pipeline. When Pipeline 3 is being replaced, it could have been put back into its own corridor, but more recently, Leech Lake Reservation uh, issued a, um, a couple of resolutions against having a pipeline um, dug up or put a new one adjacent to it, and the old one abandoned through the Leech Lake Reservation. So they can't do that anymore. For us, and you know, at Honor the Earth and things like that, I think I think this whole uh, tar sands deal and, and how much it costs to produce and the, the associated risks, I think this is one of the top 10 global threats that isn't needed and can be prevented. If Enbridge is allowed to completely abandon the original Line 3 pipeline, what sort of precedent does this set legally, and what will the impact of this abandonment, abandonment look like ecologically? The last part is the part that scares me the most. It would be a precedent, I think, and certainly um, we're going to get there at some point or another when big oil finally has its last gasp, I suppose, against uh, solar and wind energy, and that could be 10, 15 years away. You might see pipeline abandonment of all their pipelines, in a sense, if they can't afford to operate the environmental risk is really my my biggest fear about all this. I think that's worse than putting in the actual new pipeline in, in the sense of, you know, present day, how close it is to uh, the present. Because ultimately, the pipeline, you know, it, if it has oil in it, the new pipeline is going to be watched. Because they want that oil to get to the next place and they want to get paid. But the old pipeline, they say that isn't isn't uh, good and needs to be replaced. They say that it's that's supposed to have like thousands of integrity fixes are expected over the next few years. Well, that means if you've got a bad pipeline, but you still think it's safe enough to operate, if you abandon it, how how much are you going to actually know about it? And in a in a land of ten thousand lakes, how long is it going to be before it corrodes and rusts and starts transporting waters and other invasive species and other things? maybe through those pipes for who knows what distance and from what place to another, and maybe from one um, watershed to another, because it crosses three watersheds here of North America when the pipe comes across um, from Canada across uh, across the uh, Red River and then here into the Mississippi drainage and then over into Lake Superior. Uh, what kind of pushback have you seen from the state or from big oil companies that would uh, profit from this pipeline being constructed or the old one being abandoned. What kind of pushback have you seen from those guys? It really all comes back to big oil and, and, and campaign contributions, I think, is probably a lot of it. Um, but Enbridge was recently exposed for being the actual owners of the Minnesotans for Line 3 Corporation and for funding all the signs and the commercials and things like that. And it was actually, I think, that President Monaco or somebody was the president of the Minnesotans for Line 3. And He's a Canadian guy, you know, so you're seeing these guys willing to uh, be the, the, the wolf in sheep's clothing or put on the astroturf and pretend to be grassroots or something. Mm-hmm. You know, the TV ads have been talking about, it's been long enough. Well, okay, it's been four years, but does that mean it's time to sacrifice the environment for someone's personal gain? And then the PUC process has been really goofy. It's been kind of, I'll just call it... Um, inconsistent at best and maybe slanted at times because, you know, money makes it easier sometimes. The PUC, they're appointed by the governor. They're what they call a quasi
quasi-judicial entity, and so they're not part of a state agency, and they're not responsible to the governor once they've been appointed. So if they're politically ambitious, that's where you see the political pushback, just like you do with Polymet, where the people who are getting those campaign contributions and want to bring those jobs to their their uh, constituency um, are right out there, you know, fighting. And so you end up with the PUC. They don't regulate pipelines. They don't regulate safety. And all they are is providing a government process, uh, sometimes with the um, environmental impact statement being reviewed um, by the administrative law judge. But in a technical sense, these are all metro people. They're not even statewide agencies. You know, even at least like with the DNR, DOT, PCA, they got people across the state who are plugged in on the ground and know the, the communities and they know what's going on with the various issues that they work on. You know, the people at the PUC, St. Paul. People at the Department of Commerce, St. Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's when a spill occurs is when they step in. Otherwise, these oil companies are self-regulated. Closer you get, man, the uglier it is. Through our discussion of Pipeline 3, Frank and I began to talk on the concept of water property rights. It is a pretty radical idea that I had never heard of and found very interesting pertaining to pipelines and transporting liquid goods over the country. One of the crazy things about water property rights, and this is where it gets really quirky, and this is this is um, this is a part that, that people don't think about the sovereignty of tribes. But part of our rights are water rights, and so where we live here in Minnesota, they refer to all the water here as being riparian, and everybody can you know go along the shoreline, everybody can go out and use the lake, launch your canoe, you got public access and so forth. You get out by Standing Rock, further west, they talk about the Winter's Doctrine and the 100th Meridian. The 100th Meridian is basically where rivers start becoming less and less abundant, less water, and, and so people have developed water rights, or what they call prior allocation, where people actually own a certain percentage of water from a source. And, and so... You have those two concepts, but those aren't our concepts. Right. Our concepts are different. And so under the Malak decision in 1999, the Supreme Court said that treaties are to be interpreted the way the Indians would have understood them at the time. And when you look through our treaty journals, you see where Flatmouth, who was from Leech Lake, he talks about needing to have access to the lakes and rivers from where we get our livelihood and talks particularly about the tree where you get your maple and the fish. And and then you look in the 37 treaty, because that was at that treaty session where, where um, those comments were in the journal, they also reserved wild rice. All three of those um, parts of nature require um, uh, an abundant, high-quality water source that needs to be maintained like that so that you always have wild rice so that you always have fish and so that you know you always have good 
Ramirez Danik are going to have a water rights fight in Minnesota. And Rosebud, as a reservation, was actually providing the fresh drinking water from the Missouri River and the Oglala Aquifer to the five counties that are inside the boundaries of Rosebud. They actually post their clean water drinking standards with the EPA like any other city or county would do with their water. And they, at that point, it's kind of a crazy thing I had to explain to them, but you have become the primary water jurisdiction within the boundaries of Rosebud because you're controlling all of the fresh drinking water for everyone, and the state isn't. So they can't just run across your water rights. And there was a story that came out about eight months ago now, and it says uh, something like KXL judge says tribes must follow tribal or uh, um, KXL must follow tribal laws and treaties. And NARF had, had revised its complaint to include that kind of water jurisdiction because they were running right across the center of Rosebud thinking, well, as long as we don't run across any Indian land or trust land, that's just, you know, privately owned land, we can get eminent domain and do what we want. But water is a different thing. And that's what we're looking at here is, you know, whether you can cross water boundaries. If you can't cross water boundaries in Minnesota, land doesn't help you. Finishing my conversation with Frank, I had a sense of being a better informed citizen. Our discussion of Native American water rights and the success that Honor the Earth has had in holding off big oil gives me a sense of optimism about the future of these battles. There's still work to be done, and Enbridge is not going down without a fight. But when people are informed and active, that's when grassroots victories happen. This has been Jeremiah McCulloch with the Public Lands Podcast, signing off.